0: That for a slice of fried gold? Are oh, You think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life.
1: I'll be back.
2: Just a fresh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains.
0: Take your sticky paws
2: off me, you damn dirty ape!
0: I'm sorry, Ben.
2: I can't It's alive, It's, alive, it's alive. I guess everyone's
1: a of the one scared it. Start. We're, uh, we're on it right now. Uh,
0: we're recording. You see oh, okay. Todd floating across the screen. Well, hello, and welcome to Cinema Shock. It's a podcast dedicated to the history and evolution of
1: cult and genre movies. I'm one of your hosts, Gary Horn. I'm Justin Bishop we're joined today by writer comedian and I don't have a, a other clever thing to call you this week so I forgot to do that Todd Davis
0: hey do we still have to do that every time he shows up now he's just here
1: do nope. we just call um, him podcaster Todd Davis no writer comedian <laughs> and swell guy <laughs> swell guy that's it pretty swell. sure Yeah, pretty swell.
2: (laughs) Thanks for having me back.
1: Yeah, thanks for showing up, Todd. Thank you for showing up. Hey, guys. This is week week six, I think, of our Tom Savini, George Romero series. Does that sound right? Week six? We're over halfway through this series where we're exploring the collaborations between George A. Romero and Tom Savini. One of the greatest, I don't know, I think it's one of the, like legit one of the greatest, at least in the horror genre collaborations in in history, in film history. That's I think that's fair. Is that hyperbolic of me to say or do you guys agree? I don't think so.
0: They're the Lyddon and McCartney of Gore.
2: Yeah, well yeah, I like that. That's a that's a (laughs) I like that description. Uh which one's which? Uh, I I would I would say I would say they're more the OGs because I think things have definitely progressed since then. But yeah, they're they're kind of the grandfathers sounds grandfather's.
1: like a bit of a, sounds, it's like a bit of a backhanded compliment there, Tom. No, I'm
2: no, I'm just saying like they they it kind of kicked off with those guys.
0: I feel like it's backwards, but I would go Savini is Lennon and Romero is McCartney is how I would picture it. Yeah, except
2: Lennon's dead,
1: like George Romero.
0: Oh well, oh. there's <laughs> a little wrinkle in the play. And I was just gonna say Romero seems like the laid back like nice guy and Tom Savini, Savini looks like he'd nice. fuck your wife oh uh, yeah he would you guys ready to get on with this I'm on it yeah I'm getting it on um.
1: so Tom Savini has if you listen to him in interviews he credits two movies as the movies that sort of made his career uh, the first of course is a movie we talked about a couple of weeks ago George Romero's Dawn of the Dead uh, but as a result of that movie he got the job on the second movie that he credits as kind of kickstarting his career which was 1980s Friday the 13th uh, now, with the one-two punch of those two movies, he was kind of solidified as the go-to guy for gore effects during the golden age of eighties horror. After Friday the Thirteenth, he went on to create the gore for uh, for Maniac, for Eyes of a Stranger, The Burning, The Prowler. These are all movies that we kind of skipped. We didn't really go over in this series or talk about his work on them because you know they're they're not George Romero movies, and we're sort of focusing specifically on that collaboration. But they're still very important milestones in his career, I think. And I'm sure we'll talk about all of those
2: at some point in the near future. Nice. Yeah. I'm right looking. For- <laughs> <laughs> I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to that because, um, I-, I mean, I've heard of Maniac. I don't know that I've ever actually watched Maniac. Well,
0: it is fun. It's, it is no, fun. It's not, I mean, fun may not be the word, but.
1: if You, you can watch the, the Joe Bob version's fun. It's uncomfortable sometimes. It is. It's, <laughs> it's a dark, dark movie. The remake's really good, too.
2: Yes. I think I, I think I saw a good bit of the remake. Uh, a
1: good of. bit. You just didn't finish it? You just started watching it and didn't finish it? Yeah, yeah I just didn't finish it. <laughs> I'm not
0: feeling this. I've seen better.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> while he would continue to create gore effects over the years, in 1982, he worked on a film that gave him a chance to really kind of stretch his legs creatively. He worked not only on the gore effects, but he, worked, he was able to work on this movie on the kind of creature effects that guys like Rob Botin and Rick Baker would be known for. Uh, of course, Rob Botin already kind of becoming known for at the time that this movie came out. And that film, which was, of course, directed by George Romero and written by none other than Stephen King, and the subject of today's episode is the classic horror anthology Creepshow.
2: show, from the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo, and the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, you'll scream at ghastly ghouls, cringe at weird kids, and shiver at the doings of evil doctors. This is going to be extremely painful, Mr. Vero. Oh. show will grab you, <gasps> grow on you, and give you the creeps. Meteor shit! <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's an A-plus line reading. <laughs> I think not. Yeah. Not you, Gary. I mean, yours is fine, but Mr. Stephen King's line reading of that is chef's kiss. I'm doing the chef's kiss emoji right now. You can't see that as you listen to this podcast, if that's what's going on. Stephen Stephen <laughs> King
0: does a fantastic job, just all around, in just delivering a a performance uh, avant garde. Just. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Something we'll get into that. We'll get into Stephen King's performance here in this episode. Don't worry, but first we're going to do a little. We're going to give a little backstory on this one. So I thought about maybe this is the first time we've done a horror anthology movie, even on our old podcast, Gary. I don't think we ever did an anthology film, and it's it's kind of a tricky one to to tackle because it's essentially an anthology movie is essentially multiple short films just you know smushed together. So I thought about us, you know, maybe tackling kind of the history of the horror anthology or, or something along those lines. But I figured there will be plenty of time for that in the future. Maybe we'll do a Mario Bava movie and, and you know, talk about some really old school horror anthology films. But instead, what I want to do here before we get into the making of creep is I want to talk a little bit about the history of EC Comics. Todd, as a comic guide, this might be of interest to you. And there's a lot here that I'm not going to have time to get into. The the history of EC Comics is tied into the history of comic books, period, in, in, in ways that we're going to talk about, but also in ways that we won't be able to get into. But essentially, the guy who founded EC Comics made the very first comic book ever. He was the first guy who took like comic strips and compiled them into a book. If that makes sense, so essentially I mean, what we what we think of as the comic book.
2: Yeah, uh, that was, I mean, yeah. comics were essentially uh, just a way for you know the smaller print companies, especially you know post uh, Great Depression, to basically double their profits.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, entertaining comics, more commonly known as EC Comics, was founded in 1944, and they specialized in horror, crime, dark fantasy, and science fiction comics throughout the 40s and all the way through the mid 1950s. Oddly enough, though, it originally specialized in educational books. EC originally stood for educational comics, and uh, so they he originally they focused on educational books or stories that were targeted at kids but after the original owner Maxwell Gaines was killed in a boating accident in 1947 his son William took over and that's when it really started to kind of delve into genres like horror sci-fi war etc and Maxwell Gaines uh or I'm sorry William Gaines the son originally didn't have any interest in comic books or, or publishing at all he went to like dental school or something boring but he, uh, he he got into this uh, because he inherited it basically. So he uh, he took this fledgling comic book company and kind of looked at the trends that were going on and decided he would focus on different genres, on genres that he thought would sell. And the stories in these EC comics they were known for their their shock endings. Think of you know what what. Twilight Zone would later do, only to a greater extent that couldn't be shown on television. And also for their social consciousness. They off, often tackled progressive themes like racial equality, nuclear disarmament. There were anti-war stories, environmentalism, things that you normally didn't see in comic books at the time. I mean, most of the time when you saw a war comic, it was sort of these jingoistic, like praising those soldiers as heroes, whereas the East. Right, yeah. Whereas the EC comics would show the after effects of the trauma of war, things that you you know were pretty heavy at the time. I mean, these were being published during during World War II for a good part of the time. That those war comics and a variety of other genres they, they kind of became known for, but it was the horror books that they did that really became notorious. Uh, there were t- there was tales from the crypt, the vault of horror, the haunt of fear. These all became incredibly popular with younger readers at the time, but they weren't so popular with those readers' parents. So in the late 1940s, the comic book industry became the target of public criticism for their content and and the effect that a lot of people thought that they, that, that, that content would have on kids. And like I said, there's a lot of history here that we're not really going to have the time to get into. But what this whole movement sort of led to was the publication of a book called The Seduction of the Innocent. It was written by a psychiatrist named Dr. Frederick Wortham, and it sort of warned about the negative effects of comic books and how they were a major cause of juvenile delinquency. That was his thought. Then in 1954, that's the same year that this book was published, there was also a highly publicized congressional hearing on juvenile delinquency, and comic books were a big part of that discussion. Uh, There's a lot of yada, yada, yada in between each of these points that I'm making, but this basically led to a federal investigation and a shakeup in the entire comic book industry.
2: Now, Uh, there um, there were
1: distributors that would not, no longer distribute comic books.
2: So just a real quick, fun story about the book, The Seduction of the Innocent. A few years ago, I was at um, the Heroes Convention, which is a big comic book convention in Charlotte, North Carolina. And... um, A lot of times fans will bring, you know, sketch pads and stuff and they'll take them around to the artists because there's tons of artists at these things. And they'll ask every uh, artist that's working there, hey, give me your version of Batman or give me your version of Spider-Man or whatever. One particular year, someone brought a really nice leather bound hardback copy of uh, Seduction of the Innocent and was passing it around to all the different artists saying Draw your most disgusting, pornographic, um, (laughs) deviant thing you can think of in as much detail as you want. And I think at one point (laughs) and it was it was by the end of the by the end of the weekend, there was one page that if you just set the book down, it would just open to this particular page because it had been viewed so much and someone had just drawn a gigantic vagina. (laughs) <laughs> um, with hair and, and, and a lot of detail. And it was, it was really fun to see that at a show, but, um, but yeah, that's my fun little, that's production great. Of the, Yeah. It was really fun. That's was really just, like
0: you can go back and look and see like some of these conversations that were going on at the time. And it's really crazy to think about. I mean, it goes back to stuff we talk about all the time with movies and everything too, with, as far as, sex and violence like it's okay to chop somebody's head off in a movie but to show a titty or something i don't know like it just there there's there's these weird or like language is you know okay or i don't know it's just like the weird sometimes almost sounding seemingly hypocritical views censorship takes that was going on here where it's like you know i, I mean I, I casually mentioned the the captain america thing where he's just like punching a japanese guy and then that's the logo on the thing during World War two or something that nobody saw that as like potentially like well hey you're really you know this this could be problematic in some ways too uh, you know the the spirit of America was behind it so that was okay but then you know like horror comics were really offensive and and there's like literally a conversation I read between games and like what uh, are uh, the senators or something where they're talking about what uh, are the covers and it's a person with another person's head cut off, and so they're like, "Do you think this is tasteful?" And he's trying to just, or he, he calls it he's like, "I did this as tastefully as possible." And they're like, "You call this tasteful." And he's like, "Well, considering this is a story about a person that cuts another person's head off, yes, like I could have." <laughs> and like they're trying to describe like what he could have done. and I don't know it's just kind of interesting to see them like have that conversation back and forth and just you clearly
2: want to bury this guy. Well, there was um, I I had the chance to a few years, uh, quite a few years ago now, uh, give a a lecture, I guess, at a at a college in Florida where we were talking about the history of the comic book industry. And I was going through some of the, you know, World War II things that, you know, the positive stuff that came out of World War II, And then I had these books uh, or these photos of Nazis burning books. And as I was flipping through those photos, I transitioned into photos of parents and uh, National Guard soldiers burning stacks of comic books, and it. And I let the audience sort of take that in of like we came we came from defeating this one particular enemy only to sort of become that in that in that respect of destroying artwork literature um, just because it. You know, it's supposedly offensive or uh, causing kids to be t- causing kids to be kids, I suppose. Yeah.
0: If you're listening right now, you can imagine how awkward it is that right now on my Facebook page there's a photo of, of all of us standing
2: around burning Todd's comic book. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 deserved. I, I appreciate that. Thank you.
1: <laughs> so what happened due to all this backlash is that And and due to the fact that a lot of the distributors were, you know, the the whole distribution cycle was completely upended, sales plummeted uh, in comic books and a lot of companies went out of business. So Gaines, what he does, the owner of EC Comics, he calls together a meeting of his fellow publishers, suggesting that the comic book industry pull together to fight outside censorship, basically to self-censor so that the government couldn't have a hand in it. This has happened with movies as well. Uh, That's basically where the MPAA came from with similar results. <laughs> they uh, So they basically were trying to repair the industry's reputation by saying, look, we're going to self-censor and we're going to make sure that, you know, before something, you know, we're going to we're going to make sure that we're the ones setting these standards, basically and this ends up leading to the formation of the Comics Magazine Association of America and the comic code authority which was created by the the CMAA the comics code authority was rigorously enforced every comic basically had to had code approval before they could be published and you'll see comics of this era with the CCA logo on them, that stamp of approval, which, and this is very, very different. This is a far cry from what Gaines had intended when he called all these comic publishers together. He didn't want it to turn into this like fascist sort of thing that it turned into because that's what it turned into. Uh, So he refused to join. This, This association that he had had a hand in forming, he refused to join at all. And because... He refused to join. He didn't have the CCA stamp on his comics, so a lot of distributors refused to handle his comics at all, which led to Gaines having to cancel a lot of his comics, especially the horror stuff. And it eventually led to him shutting down all of his comics and focusing on one humor magazine by 1956 that he had also been publishing, which is still... I wouldn't say going strong to this day, but still exists <laughs> no. to this day, which is Mad Magazine. Yeah, you know, what's insane too is that comics code
0: authority stamp, like that, that was, that lasted forever too. A long, uh,
2: long, long time.
0: It may yeah. still be around for all I know, because I've, I've been a little out of comics, but I, I know like in the early, what was it like early 2000s? Yeah. Was the first time like Marvel finally like created that Max imprint where they were like removing the Comics Code Authority seal. And it was like a big deal that like this major publisher was going to go adult, you know, and and remove that stuff. I don't know. Just kind of interesting that it lasted that
2: long. Well, yeah. I mean, it's kind of, and I think because of that, I think a lot of artists and writers sort of wanted to buck that trend of like, well, this is, you know, a way for the government and corporations to control my art. And so out of that, you know, long story short, you get companies like image and dark horse and they yeah, make owner creator. Uh, owned. Yeah. Creator owned. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and they end up and they make some of the best, some of the best books around. Right. And as is with most
0: things,
1: it, when you try to to shut shit down like that, people get more interested in it. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> so a lot of the kids who grew up on those comics though, never forgot them. These were formative comic books for a lot of kids, a lot of monster kids, a lot of people who would grow up to be monster kids. A lot of those kids grew up to be writers themselves or comic book artists, or in the case of what we're talking about today, filmmakers. And tell us from the crypt, the EC comic was licensed for a movie in 1972 followed by, it was fairly successful. So they followed it up with a vault of horror in 1973. I don't know if you guys have seen those movies. Have you seen those?
2: Oh, it doesn't ring a bell.
1: Yeah. I don't think I have either. I don't think I have either. I'm, I'm aware. I've always been aware of tales from the crypt, uh, the movie, but I don't,
2: I don't know that I've ever
1: actually saw it, but probably the most famous EC comics movie wasn't actually a direct adaptation of one of their titles or any of their stories, but rather one that was heavily inspired by those comics. Of course, that's the movie we're talking about today. I'm sure you have pieced that together. <laughs> what? What are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> so George Romero and Stephen King both grew up reading those EC comics. They were both those kids whose like parents tried to take those comics away from them. You know, the 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 fun thing about this whole story to me in addition to the comic book, is is the fact that you've got these two guys who now, as we think of them, are titans of horror. Now, at the time, not so much. Romero kind of was already, but Stephen King was still pretty early in his career at this time. We we talked a little bit about their friendship on our Knight Riders episode, but I was very curious exactly how these guys got to know each other. I knew that they were friends by the time of Night Riders, but I wasn't exactly sure why. So I looked into it a little bit and I found out that their, their relationship actually predated not just Night Riders, but Dawn of the Dead as well. Uh, their relationship, their friendship started, they were bros. These guys were friends. I mean, that's why... That's why Stephen King is in Knight Riders. It wasn't because they were like writing something together. It's because George Romero and Stephen King liked each other. And he's just like, hey, you want to have this little bit part in this motorcycle drama that I'm directing? Uh, So that's why he's in there. But their relationship goes back to just after the release of Martin. So a lot like when we talked about effects, Martin actually screened at the film festival that's now known as the Sundance Film Festival. At that screening there were some Warner Brothers executives. They enli- they liked the movie, they were impressed by Romero's work on the film, and after the film they got in contact with Romero. They wanted to work with him, and they said, "Hey, we want you to meet this writer. This this guy, this this young writer. We just bought a book of his, one of his properties called Salem's Lot." So this of course is kind of typical Hollywood logic. They're like, "Hey, you know, you made a movie about a about a vampire in a small town." Well, here's another story about a vampire in a small town. You might be you might be into this one too. We know you uh, like
0: zombies, George, but I know you <laughs> want break out of that mold. So let's put you let's put, let's you, put you in this mold. Yeah, let's put you in the <laughs> vampire in small town mold. It sounds so, weird to me, by the way, that, that like Stephen King and him would hit it off. I I don't think. Because you gotta think like now we hit it off because of horror movies or whatever, but these guys are in a time where this stuff's even harder to come by. The second one of them says EC Comics. I bet they're just like,
1: boom. nerd now. Yeah. yeah, like this is my oh, people. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> so Romero and Stephen King they meet up. They they or uh, Warner Brother sets up a meeting with them, and they talked about Salem's Lot, but they also talked about another recent book that King was working on or that he was publishing called The Stand. And Romero really wanted. To make the stand, honestly, even more so than he wanted to. Salem's Lot, and in the end, of course, we all know Warner Brothers ended up making Salem's Lot for television with Toby Hooper as the director, and it's a really great adaptation. Uh, and neither King or Romero were involved by the time they made the transition to television, but the two did stay in touch. And Romero and his, uh, Rubenstein, uh, his producer that we've talked about multiple times here on the show they went to Maine and they met with Stephen King to discuss the possibility of doing a film adaptation of The Stand. Now, I don't know that an adaptation of The Stand would have flown under with any movie studio in the late 1970s, because uh, it is fucking bleak. You know, it is very bleak, and it would be a hard sell. And it's also really, really long. So it it's one that, of course, it ended up being a, you know, miniseries, multi-part miniseries in the 90s. But I read a couple of things
0: that seemed to hint at that that was part of what even appealed to Romero was that wondering if he could like, uh, I forget where I read that at. It was like kind of, maybe there was an idea that he wouldn't have to work, like studios were never going to be on board with this, but maybe this was something he could try to pull off on his own like he's like been doing. independently, yeah. yeah.
1: So during the meeting though, when, they, when Romero and King started talking about this, Romero also brought up the idea of doing a horror anthology. And his initial pitch for that was pretty interesting. He he kind of had the idea to make an anthology that traced the history of horror movies, of horror filmmaking. Uh, it sounded pretty cool. Did you look into this at all, Gary? Yeah, yeah. I read a little bit about that, just like having each one like a different
0: era or something. Yeah,
1: using like different aspect ratios, different film stocks. Uh, so he would do one that's like a, you know, black and white silent type, you know, a Val Luton black and white type segment and then I think at the end he was going to have like a big 3d segment you know to kind of celebrate that era of horror filmmaking it sounds pretty cool honestly yeah yeah, somebody else would do that now
2: yeah that sounds pretty awesome actually
1: but so he brought that up as an idea but then Stephen King was like no why don't we do an anthology in the style of these EC comics that we both grew up loving so that that's kind of what they did And Stephen King, of course, was going to write the script. He had never written a script before at this point. He hasn't written very many scripts at all, actually, Stephen King. I mean, with with as many, the dozens and dozens of film adaptations of his work, he has written very few screenplays. But it's
0: also still Stephen King.
1: It's also still Stephen King. Although some of the other movies that he wrote screenplays for are less than stellar. Like well, I'm not, you know, I'm not silver trying to pass bullet and, on, yeah.
0: his, on his stories, this or his, his scripts necessarily. I'm just saying, like, if you're like, hey, can you write something? He's like, I'm Stephen King. I shit stories. Yeah, yeah. all I do <laughs> is write.
1: Yeah. So, well, what they ended up doing, Rubenstein asked him. Like, how long is it going to take you to write a script? And he said, 60 days. He knew exactly how long because Stephen King, he's talked about this a lot, but he, he has this routine where he approaches writing like it's a job. He sits down at a typewriter and he's like, I'm going to write for five hours a day. And however many words I get out, that's what I do. And that, And sometimes he ends up throwing that day's work away because it's trash, but he's writing the whole time. And he knew exactly how long, based on how many words and how long a script needed to be, that it would take him 60 days. And 60 days later, to the day, he delivered a script, at least the first draft, to Rubenstein's desk.
2: That's pretty awesome. Yeah. It's it's really cool like that, you know, certain guys like that. And I know in this series, I think I've mentioned it before, Clint Eastwood, who when he directs something, his whole big thing is like on time and under budget.
1: Yeah, that doesn't always work out for Clint Eastwood.
2: Well, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) but he is
1: he is incredibly hit or miss as a director
2: well sure but it's it's always nice to to see folks that have that work ethic of like hey we're gonna get this done it's gonna be done right on time under budget on you know you you get the product when you when i say it's gonna come in so and then there's quentin tarantino
0: who's
1: like you'll get it when i get it yeah yeah, yeah. and (laughs) and it'll make you a lot of money so just be patient (laughs) Just yeah just shut yeah. up and be... <laughs> uh, of course some of the segments of the script were based on previously published Stephen King short stories while others were created specifically for the film which i think is one of the things that makes us kind of a fun anthology uh, because there are a couple that they, they were not they were already written although they were not published to uh, widely published to the public I guess you'd say Prior to this, we've talked about this. Like he, he liked to work with kind of the same crew. Even in the case of actors, he worked with a lot of the same people. He often worked with unknown or little-known actors in his films. But in the case of Creepshow, he and Rubenstein and, and uh, Stephen King, they kind of talked it out. They felt that the characters were so well-drawn and so specific in Stephen King's script that they could cast more well-known actors and, instead of like just finding someone they could cast someone who was more well-known, but that fit the mold that King, you know, had written. And one of the first actors that Romero met with was the legendary Tom Atkins, who, uh, who actually Tom Atkins, when he read the script, he's like, I want to play the guy who gets eaten by the plants, uh, (laughs) Jordy Vero and Romero actually had to break it to him that he had actually already cast that role. And he had already cast Stephen King himself, in that role <laughs> which is on one hand you can totally
0: see why tom atkins was well it was the most like actor heavy role i guess like yeah basically. it's like a
1: one-man show a one-man yeah. play basically
0: yeah. yeah but but also it's hard well we'll get to it so it's weird thinking of tom atkins in there at the same time
1: well of course tom atkins ended up playing the dad in the wraparound segment mm-hmm. which is also a great role it's a really fun role i mean he's, he's a dick but well Tom it's Atkins one, is great
0: in general and yeah this is his first official appearance appearance on Cinema Shock. So
1: Exactly and time. he will appear, I'm sure, many, many more times. And of course the young kid, the, the son in that segment, in the, the opening and closing segment, is Joe King, better known these days as Joe Hill, who is a an incredible writer in his own right. Nice. You know, there's there's plenty of people that this movie is going to have like a
0: huge impact on and we can talk about more later, but like it, it just, uh, it's weird. I was watching like some other side interview with Joe Hill just talking about uh, this movie and being on set and that his dad, you know, was kind of tied up during everything. So he just got to spend a lot of time with Tom Savini. And, yeah, you know, That's awesome. so he 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 knew what his dad did but he said it was like really like hanging out with Tom Savini that like made him just like, you know what I want to do when I grow up is kill people in inventive ways. <laughs> and he's like, it turns out I couldn't do it with latex as well as I needed to. So I, I, I did it on the page. So Yeah, I, like your dad. Yeah, like your dad. So, But uh, it was just interesting. Like Savini apparently was like a huge influence on him.
1: That's fun. I didn't know that. That's nice. awesome. So this was the first time that Romero and his crew got to like a real, you know, film studio, quote unquote film studio, at least. In keeping with Romero's desire to shoot in and around Pittsburgh, as he always had, most of the film was shot in an empty all girls school that was just outside of Greensburg, Pennsylvania. And they basically took this school and converted the rooms and the hallways and everything into sound stages. And the prologue and the epilogue plus the entirety of The Lonesome Death of Geordie barrel at least all the interiors, and the entirety of their creeping up on you, those were shot completely on the sound stages that they created in this school. Nice. Uh, in fact, they, they, there's also, there's some footage actually of this and there's a great documentary that I got a lot of this information from, by the way, called Just Desserts, uh, The Making of creep show. It's an hour and a half long documentary about The Making of creep show that nice. I think Arrow Video released on Blu-ray a couple years ago. But uh, there's some really fun behind the scenes footage where you see Tom Savini's like studio and it's a locker room where they converted his locker room into a studio. So you walk in this locker room because I think the, the gymnasium was one of the main sound stages that they use. So you walk in the locker room and there's just, you know, latex heads and stuff everywhere. And it's, it's really it's really cool footage. That's You can That's awesome. track it down on YouTube. I'm sure there's some uh, some excerpts on there. Yeah. That's cool. You know, another, I I guess I'll
0: throw this in here right now. I don't know where else it will fit better, but another person during filming that I thought was really interesting that I read a story about came in as a horror fan and had planned on being a doctor. And they were just a young kid looking to check out a film set. And Romero took him on a tour around. And uh, he said, I've never seen so many people having this much fun. It led to him meeting Tom Savini also, and creating a relationship with, and Savini convincing him, not on purpose, just because of how much he loved what he did, that, hey, you could be these things that you're really into, that you really dig, they can also be the things you do in life. Uh, it doesn't have to be the standard career. Uh, that man was Greg Nicotero. And, nice. uh, and so he uh, decided against being a doctor and becoming one of the greatest special effects artists of all time. So. Yeah, I mean, he
1: basically <laughs> became became uh, Savini's protege.
0: Yeah, and we'll see him pop up next week, I guess. But yeah,
1: yeah, for sure. We're gonna approach this one a little bit differently because this is a this film is essentially five short films. So I think we're, we'll talk about each one of these segments. Separately, So let's go ahead and start with the first one. The first one is Father's Day. So this is one of the few segments to be filmed entirely on location. They actually filmed this one at a mansion in uh, the Pittsburgh suburb of Fox Chapel, Pennsylvania. And the cast of this one is, it's really fun because George Romero sort of seems to be playing on some of these. He's playing around with the idea of, I don't know, it, almost casting like people he grew up watching these like old Hollywood icons, not, not people we'd see as icons now, but people that he fondly remembered from movies as a kid. This one in particular includes Vivica Lindfor. She plays Bedelia Grantham, the kind of the main, I don't know if you'd call her the main character, but she's the the one that's driving the story, I guess you would say. So Lindfor is not not a household name exactly, but she was a classic Hollywood actress who appeared in over 100 films throughout her career, she starred alongside the likes of Errol Flynn, Ronald Reagan, James Cagney, uh, Charlton Heston, like all kinds of guys, like all kinds of really famous actors. She, and I mean, and when I say start alongside, I don't mean that she had like supporting roles in these films. I mean, she was like the romantic lead. She was largely, I guess forgotten by modern audiences today. But at the time, I mean, she was, she was a big deal. Nice. And she's not the only classic Hollywood actress to appear in this particular segment. It also features an actress named Carrie Nye. She plays Sylvia Grantham, the uh the I guess matriarch of the family that we see in the beginning. Uh and and Carrie Nye was another actress with a career that spanned back to the mid 1950s. She married uh Dick Cavett and they were married from like the mid 60s until his death. So, you know, very much in the, like, Hollywood royalty realm, you know? Yeah. And, of course, there's Ed Harris. I mean, Ed Harris now is a, a big deal. We talked about him a lot last week on Knight Riders, and that's basically why I got the role here, because George Romero, you know, they, they knew each other and they were friends. And he called him because Ed Harris was not quite a movie star yet. He was definitely on the rise, but he had not yet had his breakthrough role, which came the following year in the right stuff when he played John Glenn. And that sort of made him Ed Harris, the movie star that would go on to be in, you know, The Abyss and uh, Apollo thirteen and you know, hundreds of other things that we all know him from. But if you can't tell from here that this guy is just
0: charismatic as all hell. It just yeah. hell I of can't. an answer. Yeah, no. I mean, that's one of my favorite parts of this whole movie. It's, it's just—I uh, don't know, man. From Night Riders on, and it's like I had not seen Night Riders before, but like after this movie, like I'm just like a huge Ed Harris fan. Like I just—I got this urge to like watch everything Ed Harris. He's
1: awesome, sudden. man. He yeah, really, he's, re, he's really great. He really is. He's got a great screen presence, even in a fairly small role here. But but a fun role. I mean, he gets squished by. A falling uh, tombstone you know, <laughs> by uh, by the character that's credited in the, in the credits as Nathan's corpse. Because, of course, there's a different actor playing Nathan Grantham than there is playing the corpse. The corpse is played by John Amplis, who we've talked about a lot on this show, more than I thought we were going to. <laughs> but, right, of course, he was the star of Martin, but he also had a small role... In uh, in day in Dawn of the Dead and also in Night Riders, he's kind of a Romero regular, you know. Yeah. yeah so is uh, Warder Shook,
0: who's uh, you know, he's 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 in Dawn of the Dead. He's the uh, security guard in the basement zombie. Yeah. Uh, and he's also Pippin in Night Riders. Oh yeah, yeah. He's
1: in the segment as well. But yeah, but he. You know, I looked him up and he didn't do very much outside of the work with with Romero. I don't know if he just pivoted to maybe working on stage primarily instead of movies or what. But uh, yeah, after I saw him in this, I looked him up because I was like, oh, you know, that's, that's Pippin. That's the same guy. But he he really didn't do much after this. That's
0: why I wanted to make sure to give him some love
1: here. Well, thanks, he, Gary. Yeah, he just we appreciate you, Mr. Shook. So Nathan's corpse, I would have to say, the the look of that, it is one of my favorite. It's honestly one of my favorite effects in the movie. Uh, what, what, maybe one of my favorite of Savini's career. I just love the look of that guy. I think he's a really fun design. And there's a reason that, like, you see that scene of him holding the cake, you know, on t shirts and posters and all kinds of stuff, because it's really iconic, I think, and a really, really fun design. I mean, if you Google John Ampless, you're bound to f- find. That photo. Of that's them. his photo on IMDb. <laughs> right. If you look up John, if you look up John Amplis on IMDb, his main photo is a picture of Nathan's corpse. It's not even his face. It's a that's, skull. That's so awesome.
0: <laughs> I don't know why I thought of this, but I guess it's just something in the way it moves or looks or something. But I thought of the tar zombie from Return of the Living Dead. Yeah, tar Man. Yeah, tar Man. Yeah, sorry. Uh, that there's just something, just a really cool looking zombie creature fig. I don't yeah, know
1: yeah v- very memorable which you know it, it's something that I think I think Savini does very well is create these I don't know star zombies it's something that uh, Greg Nicotero would take into his work on The Walking Dead as well where you've got like you've got extras like zombie extras and then you've got like the star zombies you know and creating like a memorable look like in in Dawn of the Dead it happened with uh, well the one guy the bald the bald zombie is a, a very famous one and they like that design so much that they put it on the poster to the movie you know right, but yeah. then you had you know the Hare Krishna zombie for instance uh, and of course we'll meet Bub next week yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then what, you, what you've got here with Nathan's corpse and I th- that's one thing that's really interesting about this being the opening segment to this movie is because this is somewhat familiar territory for George Romero, because this is basically a zombie story. Like they're starting this off with a zombie story, only this time it's a zombie who, instead of wanting to eat human flesh, just, you know, just wants some cake. Which kind of
0: interesting, too, just to uh, think about. I don't know. I, I feel like people get locked into roles, or at least, you know, around the time that Dawn of the Dead remake came out, I think still to this day, people like argue <laughs> about what are zombies and what aren't, what are the rules for zombies. Uh, I think it's loosening up the more and more zombie shit that comes out. But sure. it's fun to see like a filmmaker like Romero who basically invented it. Like Even he's toying around with that genre a little bit. And here. continues
1: for his entire career. Right. Because what, uh, what we have to remember is that he, Romero, we're going to talk about his main three zombie movies, but he made, what, seven total, I think? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, dead. which, yeah, but throughout his career up until his death. And oh, one thing we have to say about Amplus being being Nathan's corpse is that there is at least one shot during this where it's not Amplus in the costume because they, they called to put, there was a call to put, like, maggots on the face, and he refused to, to let them put <laughs> maggots on his face, even though he's wearing, like, a mask. He's like, nah, I'm not doing that shit. No way. So <laughs> so they got one of... uh. They got like an assistant, somebody that was working with Savini or something on set. This a uh, woman uh, got on the costume and she's like, "I'll do it." So they put, and they weren't actually maggots; they were other, some other kind of like little white worm. But yeah, Amplis was like, "Nah, this is where I draw the line." It's like I will crawl in a hole in the ground, but you are not putting maggots on my face. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but it's. It's important to have standards.
1: Yeah. Hey, you gotta have. You gotta draw that line
0: somewhere. I saw they <laughs> mixed like Rice Krispie treats and maggots, or or those worms. Yeah, yeah the
1: worms. It was just, just breakfast was awkward. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't get those two boxes mixed up. <laughs> and I, they did put him in a hole on the ground. By the way, the uh, John Amplest and, and what they did on that, and they actually used this effect quite a few times on this movie. I was about to is, say that this had to be reused, right? They you well they they um. They use toilet paper as as a part of the effect a lot on the movie. So what they did, they call it toilet paper. It's probably more like tissue paper, but they Savini always refers to it as toilet paper. But basically, like they had John Amplatz in a hole in the ground. They dug a hole on on the site of this mansion where they were filming. they were actually they were not on a set during that. They were actually they actually dug a hole and put basically like toilet tissue over it and then covered it in dirt and grass and stuff so that he could easily put his hands up and crawl out. They left that hole there, by the way. What happened, the owner of that mansion's dog died during the filming of, <laughs> of the movie, and they yeah. ended up he ended up burying his dog in that hole that they had oh. dug for the movie. <laughs> yeah, and <Aunt> Amplis <laughs> had to shoot for three more days. <laughs> <laughs> they just left him in there. Yeah. <laughs> Like you stayed out here with this dog, it's fine. <laughs> I do think this is probably the most, or at least one of the most, maybe the number one, like to me, fun segment of this whole thing. I mean, they're all fun to a degree, but there's something about this one that's just—it's filled with all those primary colors. It's those comic booky colors. It's filled with some fun gore. I feel like this one embodies those EC comics, especially the ending is a very EC comics kind of ending. More than just about any other segment of this entire movie. I would totally agree. I'd also perfectly placed at the beginning because
0: uh yeah. it's it feels like it sets the right tone for what you should be expecting. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with
1: that. So one thing that I do want to go ahead and point out here, since we mentioned you know the primary colors and everything is the cinematography by Michael Gornick. Now, Gornick is a name that's come up several times on this show, although I feel like we haven't given him enough credit yet on this series, but he started working with Romero all the way back on Martin, and he would be the DP for five of Romero's films, everything from Martin to to Day of the Dead. Uh, Michael Gornick was the DP on all of those, and I think that Creepshow is probably the best work of his career as a cinematographer because it's just really fun And him and Romero, they went to great pains to give the film that, like, comic book look. And not just in, like, the the animated panels, which are, are really cool, I think. I think those work really well. But in the colors and, like, the illustrations behind characters that kind of pop out, I think that stuff is really striking to look at. I was watching this this time and thinking, like, this guy had to be ahead of his time, like, with some
0: of this. You know, we've talked about movies on our old show and stuff that kind of enact some of these same features, but I don't know. This was 1982, George Romero. I don't feel like he gets enough credit for this kind of thing. Like, I feel as though this is something... We see use over and over again through the years. Yeah, but I don't know how much it's been used quite like this before, and I, and I'm talking about those backgrounds or those colors, just the way that this movie looks, especially it's supposed to be like a quote unquote scary movie. But even these transitions with like the animated stuff going into the real stuff, and like those ideas, it just uh, I don't know. I, I just feel like there there was some real talent here uh, with yeah. thinking this up.
1: And th- those animated scenes, by the way, they were created by a, a group of guys, an animation studio that Romero knew, because their offices were in the upstairs part of the building where his uh, his offices were when he was with, with uh, Imageworks. So they were actually housed upstairs, so he just knew these guys, so when he was ready to create these animated sequences he just called these guys up and had them do it and i think those are really fun i mean they they have a very 80s cartoon look to them very 80s you know saturday morning look to them which i just yeah. think is really fun no i think it's a blast and you know i had read an
0: interview where i got that story about greg nicotero from uh he talks about just going back to this movie more than any other movie um And, and obviously he's got like some personal connection to it clearly, but he also talks about just, you know, I'm sure we'll mention later, but with like his later involvement with this very, uh, series that, you know, a lot of times he finds himself like in a situation, he's like, well, how would we do this? And he can go back and say like, well, George, like he used the animation here and like, this is how he would have done it. And, yeah. You know, And just like realizing that he can just pull from the same ideas that George was doing here. And like, well, stay under budget just by doing it this way. And it's just interesting.
1: So those scare scenes, the ones that we're talking about with, you know, the, the bright you know, designs behind somebody's head, mm-hmm. I always thought that that was probably, you know, like a green screen or something or back projection or something like that. It, I guess green screens probably weren't a big thing. At the time, or if they were even a thing at all, I'd have to look up the timeline on that. I'm honestly not sure off the top of my head. But what they actually did is that they had a screen that was semi like transparent behind them that they would back project those on, and they would just light them up. So that was actually done in real time on set, uh, which I think is really fun. Like they would hit you know hit a switch, and all of a sudden this thing lights up behind them, which is not at all what I would ever have thought. Because now, if somebody did it now, they probably would be in front of a green screen.
2: Yeah, Uh, yeah. And the
1: same goes for like the primary (laughs) colors, like when the colors switch in a scene, you know, usually during a kill or something like that and everything turns bright blue and red. That was just done on set with lights where Michael Gornick just, you know, hit a switch and all the lights switched from your traditional film lights to these bright colors, which I, I think is just a really great effect and really effective. Kind of it,
2: makes
1: me happy. Yeah, sounds fun. Yeah, yeah is
2: that fun? It's it's very comic booky. That's you know definitely fits.
1: So, moving on. Unless you guys have anything else to say about this first segment or anything, I'm going to move on to the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill.
0: Well, we could analyze Ed Harris's dance scene a little bit more.
1: If we want. <laughs> Man, I don't think I think I don't think there's much to analyze there. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> And I love it. It's a I love his. Scene. I love his little head nod. That's the best part of it, right? His little and the look, on, the wild-eyed look on his face during that moment. His desperate attempt to still seem like he's not going bald. Oh, yeah, he's <laughs> going so bald. He's only thirty years old. See, <laughs> so still has not embraced it yet. No, he he never did. He still has not embraced it. He You're still right. has even now. He has the horseshoe around his head. You know, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill is is basically a one-man show with Stephen King in the lead role. We talked about that. Uh, you know, Romero wanted him in that role. Uh, it was it was actually Romero who asked him to do that. It wasn't like Stephen King's like, I want to play this role. Stephen King was pretty hesitant about it. He didn't think he was going to be up for it. He's like, I'm not an actor. I can't do this. And Romero talked him into doing it. He's like, now nah, you'll be fine. Just listen to me. You'll be good. And King's acting here is very campy, very over the top. Yeah. yeah. But that was 100% intentional. When the film got released, that was actually a point of criticism. And Romero later said that he would maybe have King tone it down. But at the time, he was telling him to camp it up. Like, he wanted it like that. He basically told him to act as if he were a Looney Tunes character. Uh, (laughs) His exact direction was just act like Wile E. Coyote as he's going over a cliff. That's what he told (laughs) Stephen King. That's spot on. (laughs) Yeah, I I saw a
0: few interviews with Romero where he said that. He said, you know, it was cool because King trusted him, but he said towards the later days of shooting, uh, King he could tell that King was getting frustrated. It was just like, you're making me look like an ass.
1: Like this (laughs) is what are you doing? (laughs) I mean, I would never call King a good actor, not even uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But I do think that what he's doing in this particular segment, I think he's hitting the tone perfectly i think it fits the tone of it uh we we made the joke about me you know gary quoted it meteor shit earlier that's a nobody else could do that quite that way i feel like if you i think king's inexperience as an actor actually works in his favor in this particular segment because i i think that like if you had a more well-trained actor doing goofy lines like meteor shit or like talking to yourself about how much money you're going to make off selling this meteor to the local university. They'd still be fighting it. Yeah. I felt like they would just not hit that campy tone quite right. I think they'd try to be too good. You know, if that makes sense.
0: No, that, that makes perfect sense. That's exactly what I was thinking with like Tom Savini. It's like, you could see it played by like, if I feel like anybody else that was a more famous actor, Especially even like a Tom Savini, he would want to play it straight almost and it wouldn't stand out. I don't think this segment would. You mean Tom Atkins? Or, yeah. Well, or Tom Savini. Either one. Uh, Tom uh, Savini
1: would not play it down, let's just say.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I find, I don't know about you guys, but, or, or, you know, and Todd, I I don't know if you think I asked you if you'd ever seen this before, but the, I know Justin has it. And, and I find that this segment is the one that stands out to most people. For some reason, whenever I talk to people, it's like this for better or worse, this is the first thing they're this is is one, that the least... one with, uh, with the guy with the plant shit.
1: Meteor on shit.
0: Him? Yeah. The meteor shit growing on him.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the most memorable segments I would say. I think father's day is way up there. And another one, the crate we'll talk about in a minute, but there, I don't know, there's something really great about this one that is, it is campy and silly, but it's also, like, if you think about it, it's a little sad. As If you took, like, all those campy genre elements out and, like, had a more serious performance, like, if you think about what the story's actually about, this man being consumed and dying a slow death, uh, it could very well be a metaphor for, you know, cancer or some other sort of, disease that's overtaking this lonely guy who's like living out in this house by himself but the and that may very well be part of the the original story because this is one that actually is based on an existing king short story and maybe that's what king was going for and that but but yeah, adding those genre elements just makes it a lot more fun than that would be otherwise well, of course, now when this
0: comes out, I mean, I, I think of things like Color Out of Space and that sort of thing. Like it, it Yeah, just, I rewatched
1: uh, that a couple of nights ago and there are definitely some major uh, parallels, yes, between those. Yeah, so, I mean, so I guess going off what you're saying, I,
0: I don't even think I'd ever even considered it like with it being a disease or anything, which is interesting because, yeah, I mean, it definitely has that unknowable, unstoppable thing, the, the very Lovecraftian idea that it's just invading his area and uh i don't know that that is kind of interesting but yeah i maybe i'm selling tom atkins short but i feel like he would have tried to machismo it up too much <laughs> yeah yeah tried to, he's a man's
1: man he's he can't i mean he, he can sweats, play goofy but he, like he never just, really plays goofy like that right right exactly and yeah, so this is one of two segments in this film that's based on, you know, like I said, an existing King story. The story this one's based on was called Weeds and was originally published in Cavalier Magazine in 1976, but has never been collected in a King short story collection at all. Uh, the only way that it's been published at all is actually in the Creep Show comic book adaptation that came out after the film, which, by the way, uh, you, you get moments in this movie where you see the comic book. And do you guys know who did the art for that comic? Well, I,
0: I actually did read a little bit about that. Yeah. No, are you talking about the the, the redo of the comic book that came out for this? Well, both. Well, I'm, uh, okay. So we may be talking about two different things because I, okay. I did- well, Tell me I, what you know, Gary. Well, no, I was just going to say, I know that Jack Kamen, who was a, a, an original like artist on the EC Comics, actually did like the comic that appears like in the bin, the sit. Right. Uh creep show comic and he did the poster. They originally Stephen King really wanted Graham Ingalls, who was one of the most famous artists from that period, uh, to do the work, but he refused. Like that guy's an interesting story all on his own, like how he kind of <laughs> like was betrayed by everyone. Like he it's almost like he hated the idea that he was so good at horror comics, and then the <laughs> world turned against horror comics. Yeah. And so it's like, like offense. He, yeah, so that he would like refuse all of these things. But anyway, uh William Gaines, who we talked about earlier, actually suggested they they approach Jack Caiman, who was one of their other popular artists, and yeah. he did like the poster and the comic and the thing. The poster's but,
1: great. It's so yeah. good. And I don't think that's what you're talking about though. Sorry. Well, well, no, that that was part of what I was talking about. But also the the book that the stories were published in later on after the movie came out. They publish it in comic book form uh, came out. I mean, it came out the year that the movie came out, uh, but that was done by Bernie Wrightson a co-creator of Swamp Thing. Nice. Oh, fun. Yeah. Who God, I, you
0: could even see that now that you say that.
1: Yeah. I, I'm a big Bernie Wrightson fan. I've got his, uh I've got his Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that he illustrated. It's not a comic book. It's actually the novel, but with, these intricate, beautiful illustrations by Bernie Wrightson. I actually met him at Heroes Con one year, which the same convention Todd was just talking about. Oh yeah. Uh, Really nice guy. Yeah. Really nice guy. Super talented. And like, I I feel like he's like comic book royalty to me. I just love his style so much. I think it's so good.
2: Yeah. It's uh, that stuff definitely has a, it's got a fun nostalgia, but it almost, it almost feels, it almost feels timeless because it's just kind of, you can't really put you can't really pin it down to one particular era. It's it's really solid work. Yeah.
0: What's funny, you see the the affinity these guys have for that kind of stuff. If you go back and look at the art from these, I mean it's seriously good stuff. Uh that Jack Kamen and uh uh well everybody we've mentioned so far, but yeah, just just the idea that these guys uh the, the name had just escaped me. Who I was talking about before, but uh the uh oh, it's going to drive me crazy. Uh t- 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 What was his name? It's covered It's coming. Uh. Star-
2: uh. Oh, not that,
1: not that kind of. Not that kind of coming. Uh, oh, there it is. Uh. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Uh,
0: that's oh, it's been recorded anyway, for posterity. I just said his. I just said his name. Uh no, Graham Eagles. God, dang it. Like, I knew I wanted to remember his name because I I feel like that guy, I I was looking up his artwork, and it's so good. Like, it's just really legitimately amazing. And
1: Well, the fun thing about EC Comics is that William Gaines let his artists, a lot of comic book companies at the time had, like, a house style where all the artists kind of had to draw within that style, and William Gaines let his artists each do styles all their own. Like, they they drew in their own style, which is one thing that makes those comics so distinct. And so much that, like, when they decided to, later on, they decided to kind of redesign, rebrand the, the three, like, horror hosts that are presented in the comic books, like the, the Crypt Keeper, you know? in Tales from the Crypt, the Vault Keeper, and then I can't, can't remember what the third one's called, but there's these three different characters. They actually let each artist, they wanted a different artist to design each one so that each one would be drawn in the style of that artist.
0: That's pretty awesome. Yeah. That is pretty amazing. Yeah, you can find those covers on online easily. Like I, I think when I was looking at this art, you can see them, where they'll have like the, the three different storytellers along the yeah. side of the cover.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, and Tom Savini actually said that during the making of The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill, he said it was the most difficult segment to work on in the film. And one of the most difficult things that he'd actually ever done, because it wasn't because of the scope of it. He'd obviously worked on much bigger projects, like, you know, making up dozens and dozens of zombies in Dawn of the Dead. But in this one, everything they tried to do just didn't work. Like it just wouldn't work for him. Like he created this prosthetic tongue that you were supposed to be able to see plants grow on like on screen, you know, and they couldn't get it to work. Right. Uh, They had green contacts that they were going to put in Stephen King's eyes and his reflexes just would not allow them to do it. Uh, They couldn't, they (laughs) could not get the contacts in his eyes. like Stephen Does Cain's he have good.
0: notoriously a thing with eyes or something like that, or his eyes are real Well,
1: funny. he's got very bad eyesight. Maybe the, the giant glasses of. that he wears all the time. And it, so in this segment, when you see him like doing that thing with his eyes all the time, uh, like really wide, that's not just him like acting. That's him not like being fucking blind. He just can't see. Like, so he just <laughs> keeps doing that like as a reflex. I already
0: also loved to fuck with people with that fake tongue. Like he would, he would just like shoot it out at
1: people. Like to fuck people with a fake tongue.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> don't not what I said. It's not the way I meant to say it, but I, I mean it.
2: Don't don't <laughs> knock it until you try it. <laughs> so the only thing, the only effect that kind of
1: worked without a hitch in this segment was when Jordy shoots his own face off with a shotgun. But in that case, it wasn't Stephen King. It was actually Savini's assistant, and they did the, the way they did that is they had this setup where the assistant would lay down on his back through a wall there was like a hole in the wall he laid down on his back so the legs Jordy's legs are the assistant's legs wearing this like you know outfit but the upper torso that you see that's which is all covered in plant is all fake so the kid who is is playing Jordy in that scene he's holding the shotgun up at Jordy's face, but he can't see where the face is. So they're actually having to direct him on where to point the shotgun. Like, no, the face is to your left, you know, just try to get him to point it in the right direction. And then they blew up the head. They shot, I don't know if they shot it, but they exploded it, you know. Uh, By the way, that assistant was, and I called him a kid because he was 17 years old. Uh, He was a 17 year old kid that worked as Savini's assistant on this. It was a guy named Daryl Ferrucci. And the majority of the effects in the film, according to Tom Savini, were just, they didn't have like a big crew. This is actually, for as popular as this movie is, pretty low budget. I mean, I think it ended up being about six to eight million dollars all in, which for a movie of this scope is still pretty low. But Savini didn't have like a crew of makeup artists, you know, of effects artists. It was him and this 17-year-old kid who did most of the effects in this movie, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, Ferrucci had actually been Savini's assistant on The Burning and on The Prowler as well. So they had worked together. And he didn't really have a long career as an effects guy. Although, uh, other than these, he worked actually on Chud, but not as an effects guy. He worked like in the electrical electrical department on Chud. Well, probably because wow. Savini just like drove him nuts. Like I, I don't, I, I, it's it's weird. I don't know. You can
0: get away with a seventeen-year-old kid like <laughs> dragging him around on all these trips, but I saw like right after this movie uh, some VFX guy, and I can't I can't remember the interview if Tom Savini said who it was, but like it was like, hey, I got these guys from Hong Kong that uh, are looking to make a movie, and they need a effects or like you know like makeup department, and so he uh, he brought Ferrucci with him. And they just grabbed a bunch of shit from Show and took <laughs> it and showed it to them. They ended up hiring them and not hiring the VFX guy who got them the interview. And so <laughs> Ferrucci and Savini went to Hong Kong like oh, the wow. same year and like worked on it. It was called like Zhaoxing Papa. It's uh, Till Death Do We Scare is the name of the movie. And I've never seen this, but I've never <laughs> heard just, it. Wow. It's just the two of them doing effects on this like
1: Chinese horror movie. That's awesome. Very interesting. So I'm going to go on another little side tangent here, because I think that after talking about the Jordy Verrill segment, I think that's a good time to start talking about the production design on this film, because I think it's, this is one of the segments where it's especially good. The film's production designer was a guy named Cletus Anderson. I love the name Cletus. I really do. (laughs) Who doesn't? It's just a great name. There aren't enough Cletuses in the world, honestly. There's probably a reason for that.
2: (laughs) I, uh, well, it's really hard to find because it's under the it's under that one flap of skin. Oh you no! To, you
1: have
2: to you
0: <laughs> have hard. to get
2: it. It's you have hard to find it.
0: Cletus. Like, <laughs> you just get it just just right. I, yeah. What's funny is is that you're mm. saying this. Mm. Cletus Anderson was right there, the production designer, and I've heard he doesn't
1: exist. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So I, I think that. Cletus Anderson's work on this film is really good, personally. I, th- I think he's doing pretty stellar work on this, especially, again, for such a low-budget movie. I think every location that you see gives you all the information you need, to, you need to know about it, like whether it's Jordy's shack of a house or Leslie Nielsen's fancy house or E.G. Marshall's uh, high-tech apartment at the end of the movie. I think they're all, they're all recognizable and just slightly over the top like just over the top enough to give you that comic book feel but like you see leslie nielsen's apartment you know everything you need to know about that dude right yeah, like in one yeah. shot it's really it's really great but it, so in this segment in the geordie barrel segment they had to build basically everything from scratch like all we mentioned all the interiors were filmed at that closed girls school but since there's like a progression of how the plants grow in the story, they actually had to film this in continuity, which is not the way you would normally film anything. So they had to f- basically film part of the scene, add plants, film, add plants, and go on as the story went on. Then the outside of the the shack, the barn, everything was, that was all built by production. They didn't find like an old barn. They built that on the hill. They just found this open field, basically. And Tom Savini... In that Just Desserts documentary, tells a really fun story about this uh, about this barn. So they the, apparently this hill that they built the barn on was a visual cue for like pilots going through the area. So they they knew that this hill was there, and they knew where they were based on this hill being there, right? And all of a sudden, one day, they're flying over, and there's a fucking barn there that's never been there before and it's a barn it's weathered cuz they the production designer made it look weathered so it's a there's a barn there that looks like it's been there for 80 years and <laughs> they're like what where the what the fuck where am i, <laughs> I they so really they're like what's I'm happening so, right now i'm so confused and then one day all of a sudden so once filmings done they tear the barn down so all of a sudden these pilots are going over and the barn there's no evidence it's gone <laughs> <laughs> Ill again Oh, Jesus.
2: Oh, that's awesome.
1: They were responsible for so many missing people that year. <laughs> it's like the B- Bermuda Triangle of Pennsylvania. <laughs> All right, so the next segment is Something to Tide You Over. Uh, the cast of this one, of course, includes Leslie Nielsen, Ted Danson, and in a small, almost unrecognizable part is Dawn of the Dead's Galen Ross. I'd never uh, recognized her before this, this time around. I didn't either, honestly, until yeah. this time. Uh Leslie Nielsen apparently was quite the prankster on set. He had a, an electronic fart machine that he would carry around with him. Nice. Uh, they'd go out to like dinner after and he'd be like he'd hold it under the table while the, you know, servers there taking their order and just be every now and then. That doesn't sound <laughs> like him. <laughs> uh Ted Danson uh George Mero tells a story where At the premiere of Dawn of the Dead, Ted Danson. This is before Ted Danson was very well known. They were at the premiere, and George's—you know—they're kind of talking. George's like, "Yeah, what are you doing next?" And he's like, "Yeah, I don't know. I just signed on to this TV show. It's—it's about a bunch of people who just like kind of hang out at a bar. I don't really know if it's going to go anywhere." (laughs) Of course, (laughs) that's awesome. Yeah, and apparently, I—I read this in an article. In a couple different places when I was researching this, but apparently Richard Gere appears in this scene as a man on the television in a small, uncredited role. <laughs> and I found this in a couple places when I was researching it, but I couldn't find any like real confirmation of it. And when you look at his IMDb, Richard Gere, by 1982, he had already appeared in uh, Days of Heaven, the Terrence Malick movie, and In Paul Schrader's American Gigolo, which he starred in, I mean, he starred in Days of Heaven as well, but American Gigolo Gigolo was like a star-making role for Richard Gere, so the idea of him doing a small, uncredited role in this is kind of weird, unless this just happened to be filmed before those,
2: maybe? I'm not sure. I was going to say, is it archive footage? I mean, was it I mean, something for me? You know, I'd have to go back and watch and look for him because yeah, I found I, this out I'd after I watched.
1: To it. When
0: I saw your notes, but yeah, I never, I never got a chance to. Yeah,
1: so I'm really not sure. Maybe, maybe that's just one of those urban legends or something. You know, where somebody thinks that it's Richard Gear and it's just a guy who kind of looks like Richard Gear. That happens a lot on these little. When you see these little bits of trivia on movies like this, right? Yeah. So something to tide you over is filmed. It was filmed on sets for all the interior scenes but the exteriors were shot on location at a beach in new jersey Uh, it was sort of in the middle of nowhere they specifically wanted one that looked like it was in the middle of nowhere so that it's conceivable that when you know ted danson is buried and screaming that no one would hear him the only house you see is leslie nielsen's house which was not really there it was a matte painting they actually because they actually did film on a deserted beach where there was literally no houses so they had to put one in with a matte painting
2: I, to be honest, I, I didn't even realize that was a matte painting. That's, that's, I didn't either until either I Either
1: started... did Leslie Nielsen until he had to
0: go take a shit. You can imagine how frustrating that is.
1: <laughs> 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 so to shoot the scenes where Th- Ted Danson is buried, they basically had to, the, they built a hole in the ground and on the beach for him to sit with a chair in it. They put a chair in it so he could sit down. And then they put like kind of this thing around his neck and then put, uh, put sand on it. it like he was buried. And then, They shot it on the actual beach, but not in the actual tide because they didn't want to drown Ted Danson. Right. (laughs) So they ended up building, the Cletus Anderson built this sort of wave machine to simulate the surf. So it was like the series of kind of boxes that would pour water down in a way where it looked like a natural surf coming up to meet Ted Danson's face. And then when they had to do something else for the scene, you get a brief shot of Ted Danson like underwater, you know? Yeah. And for that, they filmed it in, in studio, but they filmed him in a very kind of similar setup, except that his head, instead of being above the sand, was in like an aquarium type deal. Yeah. And they had to put a uh, like an oxygen tank like a scuba diver would use, and he had to breathe through that. And then when they were ready to call action, take it away, and then he would act, and then they'd give him the air back again. Ugh. Yeah, and Tom Savini <laughs> when he tells the story about that, he's like, "We had you know safety procedures in play in case something went wrong, uh, you know." But I always stood to the side of the set with us. He's like, "I had a sledgehammer in my hand the whole time." <laughs> like he's like, "If all these other safety measures fail, I'm ready to smash that thing and get him out of there." Yeah. Uh, so Tom Savini, not only a great special effects guy, not only a great actor and stuntman, but safety supervisor. Yeah, there I you think go. We've
0: officially proved like tom savini is the legend of hollywood
1: he is he's a man like, of all trades he's a renaissance man
0: he's like he he, he should be on about rush war of hollywood like, <laughs> yeah i agree earned his <laughs> spot.
1: so i gotta say as long as we're talking about this segment despite i love leslie nielsen in this I, I love all the i love ted Danson too i think they're both great but this is actually my personal least favorite of the bunch
0: I'm certainly uh, surprised to hear you say that. I thought we were going to have an argument
1: about it, but actually this is my least favorite. I think this is the movie's weak point. This has always That's been segment. my least favorite. Always has. And I know our, our buddy Craig Carson, friend of the show, uh, I know that this is his, uh, we've talked about it with him, that this is his personal favorite segment. But this is, yeah. I, my I, I saw people say that. And, yeah. and, I, and the, the thing that I can give
0: it, is that I do think Leslie Nielsen is legitimately like kind of creepy sometimes.
1: Like he does. I think they're both, I think the performances are great. And when Leslie and I I love the gore effects or the, um, the makeup effects I should say of the corpses. I think they're really great. Kind of a waterlogged version of a zombie, you know, Uh, I think they're really fun. And I think that like Leslie Nielsen, when he's screaming in terror at the end is really good. And I, and I honestly think the overall concept of this segment is really, really good. And really, really fun. So, are you going to, on record, right now, admit that probably
0: the the issue with this whole segment is Stephen King's writing?
1: I think it is. Yeah, I think oh, that there's. Oh. Well, listen, I <laughs> wow. as, as big of a Jeez. Stephen King fan as I am, and I am a major Stephen King fan. You guys know this. I could. I mean, he also wrote Dreamcatcher, so the guy's not um, infallible. <laughs> Come on.
2: That's true. That's <laughs> but, true.
1: I think the problem with this one is that it's too sluggish. I think there's too much talking. There's too much expo- exposition. There's too much telling instead of showing. Uh, I, I think that this one could have worked better had it been earlier in the film, maybe. But after the fun one, two segments of Father's Day and Jordy Verrill, those like fun, over-the-top, campy, comic booky segments, I think this one's just a little too slow to be at the midpoint of the movie. I think that was it for me too. Is it's just like if you're watching the other ones, even if you weren't feeling them,
0: uh, especially after Jordy. Like if you were just like, "What the fuck is that?" That was goofy as shit. Yeah. Uh, at least they all felt like it's like you said a one-two punch. It's just like punchy stuff, just happening. Right. It's done. All right, on to the next one, and then it's like you get here, and it's like everything grinds to a halt.
1: Right. And and again, it's it's a fun concept. I just think. It just doesn't quite work at the point that it that it's at in the film. And it's just, and, and the thing, the ironic part here is that on multiple episodes of this podcast, I've talked about how good of an editor I think George Romero is. And this is the slowest paced segment of the film to me. And it's the one that Romero edited, but I don't think that it's slow due to his editing. Actually. I think it's still a pretty well edited segment. I just think that it's, I think the script is just, a, I think it's just a little too, too talky, you know, uh, not that it's poorly edited. I just think it's in the case of this one, I think it's a weakness is, I think the weakness is the writing.
0: Yeah. It just, well, it just feels heavy yet. Yeah, I, 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 pit it down to dialogue, like just too, like you said, exposition. And stuff. Right,
2: right. Yeah. I feel I, I, cause I actually like this segment. Um, yeah, I don't think I, it's like I, terrible I, or
1: anything, but just in comparison to the others, I should clarify yeah, that this is my. my I favorite. feel.
2: I feel like this could have been like this could have been maybe a a feature like this something some something where it's that talky and drawn out. I feel like this maybe got pared down because I mean it it starts right off with like, it, like if this was a feature. It, this starts where probably a third of the way through the movie. Well,
1: I mean, I, I could see that if it were more of a fleshed out, like overall story where you got like background on the couple and, and on the relationship. Yeah. And and that's, it, yeah. but I think as a short, I think it's actually too long. I think as a short, it could be five minutes shorter and cut out a bunch of the exposition. Well, and see, it, would, it would flow better.
2: Well, see, that's the thing is like when he's getting the, he's, when he's got the screen in front of him and she's, she's on the screen somewhere else, you know, also drowning. I I don't feel like I really care so much just because this thing has moved along so quickly. Like, well, you never get to meet her. Yeah. You never get to meet her and you never get to, you know, feel any sort of ties to these characters or anything like that. And I feel like that's where maybe this should have been, a feature or a short on its own, like a 40 minute, like a 40 minute short. And, um, but you know, I I still like it
0: going for like caring for somebody. Like maybe you make it a whole feature where you actually give background on all of these characters. It would be a totally different kind of movie, but Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it would, but yeah, in this kind of movie where it's just been like these, you know, pretty fast paced
1: stories so far.
2: Yeah, it kind of grinds
1: uh, to a halt here.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think part of the reason I like it—I I mean, I dig the performances. The the performances are really great, but I think for me as a, as a person who's also afraid of drowning, <laughs> uh, I think that's part probably part there, of the there reason. There is a I part like of it.
0: That. Hey, no, I, and I being think, married alive. Yeah, there's a part of it where I, I think about being in that scenario where you like you can't, you literally can't. It's the same thing I imagine for people with bugs, like bugs never bother me, which we're going to get to, uh, you know, like they never bother me that much in movies, but I can see it. Like, especially if like bugs really, really just F you up, like there's a, there's a, there's a feeling about, you know, if you could portray it just right about like, you can't move and you're just going to slowly be covered up. Like it just, yeah yeah, that does suck. There's there's nothing fun about that. No, yes, it it would suck.
1: (laughs) So Romero edited this segment of the film, but the film had a total of four editors working on it. Uh, Father's Day and They're Creeping Up On You were edited by the same guy, a guy named Michael Spolin. The Lonely Death of Jordy Verrill was edited Edited by uh, Pasquale Buba, who we've talked about on the show. He's the guy who worked on effects and Night Riders with with Romero. I was going to say crate- I think
0: I mentioned. Oh, sorry, I, I no, was going to say I, I think I mentioned. I feel like I mentioned him in Night Riders, and like that was the first time George started letting him in, and then right. he would forever or what, you know, he was the guy that was like. Really cool with Al Pacino also later. Like he yeah. was like Romero and Al Pacino. He became like their editor, like the guy that they trusted. Cause he huh. goes on with Romero to like monkey shies, two evil eyes, the dark half, uh, all of that. Until he makes friends with Al Pacino and starts doing Heat and uh Solomon,
1: stuff like that.
0: Like he just he's just doing all this stuff. He just becomes a really good editor.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he made a career out of it. So the Crate segment was edited by a guy named Paul Hirsch. And I looked into Paul Hirsch, and this dude has a hell of a resume. He worked on a lot of Brian De Palma movies going all the way back to High Mom, but he worked on another King adaptation, Carrie, uh, which the the first King adaptation, actually. But uh, Sisters, Phantom of the Paradise, uh, plus some later De Palma movies like The Fury, which actually gets referenced in effects, I believe. Uh, Blowout, Raising Cain, Mission Impossible. Like he worked with uh, De Palma all, all the way. Yeah, all the way up into uh, the the 90s, even the 2000s. I, by the way, I just watched Raising Cain like a week or two ago. That movie's pretty fun. Really fun John Lethgow performance if you haven't seen it. Uh, he plays multiple like a uh, multiple personality that's not a spoiler it's in the very first scene of the movie but like i'm watching that movie and i'm going i think uh james mcavoy watched this before before he did split cuz this he is doing the exact same thing oh that's yeah. cool well you also have to think that
0: that it sounds like this guy is responsible for the uh bard scene with kevin bacon dancing you know in footloose so yeah yeah oh, so yeah. he
1: he worked on footloose he also worked on uh, a couple of movies in the late 70s early 80s called um Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't
2: know this. <laughs> I think he did Ferris heard Bueller's of Day
1: Off, he did Planes, Trains and Automobiles, he did Still Magnolias. Like the dude uh, he's still working now. Like he's he's still working to this day. And that th- those are that's just a small sampling of his filmography. If you look this guy up on IMDb Uh, His last movie, his most recent credit was that Tom Cruise mummy movie that came out in 2017, which proves that not everything he touches is gold. (laughs) Uh, He hit
0: like a one-two punch there himself with like uh, Warcraft and then the mummy. Oh, he
1: also did date movie and the Adventures of Pluto Nash.
2: So oh. the guy, the
1: guy has done some garbage, but that's not on him. You know, he's that's listening the, like, right now, screaming, yeah, "I son, didn't
0: write the shit! I didn't, I didn't write Pluto <laughs> Nash! You sons of bitches! You should have like, seen it before
1: I chopped it up! <laughs> like I, I moved it from an I moved it from an F to a D minus." <laughs> well, we're moving on from my least favorite segment to probably my favorite segment of the whole movie, which is the crate. So ironically, I think this next segment, even though it's my favorite, feels the least like an EC comic story and more just like kind of a straightforward creature feature. Would you guys agree with that?
2: Yeah, that's, yeah that's I would fair. say so.
1: It doesn't have that like, I mean, it kind of has a twist ending, a shock ending, but not quite in the same way as something like Father's Day did or... You know, even something that tied you over with like, all of a sudden we've got zombies to deal with. You know, it turns into a different, completely different type of story. Or even right. though it's
0: like trying to, or even as if it's tried to give you a, uh some kind of moral ending or you right. know, whatever. It's just like a, that's a monster movie.
1: Yeah, it's a monster movie. So, And this is the other segment in the film that is based on a pre-existing King story. Just like Weeds, this one has never been published in... It's never been collected. It's only been previously published in a magazine, which was a 1979 issue of Gallery. Uh, And much like Father's Day, it also features some Hollywood royalty in some of the roles. So the main one, of course, being Hal Holbrook. Hal Holbrook is a Hollywood legend, having appeared in films like Magnum Force and All the President's Men. Uh, But probably his most famous role was the one-man play uh, called Mark Twain Tonight. You guys have probably seen footage or images of Hal Holbrook as Mark Twain he started playing that role in the mid-1950s he would play it for 60 consecutive years he finally retired it completely in I think like 2017 like literally wow. you know three years ago and I mentioned that mostly because Mark Twain tonight was actually a favorite of Tom Savini's uh, it's something that Tom Savini talks about in Smoke and Mirrors, a, a really great Tom Savini documentary that that's on Shudder. I would highly recommend if you're interested in really taking a deep dive into his career. But Savini really was interested in Mark Twain tonight, not because he was like this big Hal Holbrook fan or Mark Twain fan, but because his hero, one of his heroes, makeup legend Dick Smith, the guy who's responsible for the makeup effects in The Exorcist, uh, he was responsible for transforming Hal Holbrook into Mark Twain.
2: Nice.
1: And uh, just two years prior to Creep Show, Holbrook had appeared in John Carpenter's The Fog. So he had done horror before as well. He plays the priest, uh, whose name I can't remember, but the priest in The Fog is Hal Holbrook. And, of course, he starred in that alongside Adrian Barbeau, who would play his wife here. Uh, Barbeau, of course, was a longtime collaborator of John Carpenter. They were married for, for a while Uh, even though she was never a fan of horror movies. And she talks about that in interviews. She's like, I don't like horror movies, even though she starred in in quite a few of them. Uh, But she knew Romero because him and Carpenter were friends, but she was pretty much unfamiliar with his work being not a fan of horror movies. So when she was offered this part, John Carpenter actually talked her into doing this. She's like, you got to do it. George is awesome. George makes awesome movies. You got to do this role. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's weird. It's a,
0: this one is supposed to be the one that's like designed to tickle my fancy because yeah, you know she she's married to John Carpenter at this time when this right happens and then you know Carpenter ends up doing Christine and uh, like right after this I think and then yeah. Hallbrook is in this uh, Tom Atkins is in this like it's just it's like you got like a big crossover of like their people I don't know like yeah it, yeah. it kind of yeah. feels that way. Also, this movie has the thing with uh, the f- box. That's the crate. The name of the, the, the name of the segment. Yeah, the, the crate. Well, the crate. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't know why I would call it <laughs> the box. Uh, different movie, uh, but you know, it's what, what's it say on it? It says like "ship to Julie Carpenter" or something. Oh, like does that. it? Yeah, on, on the oh, crate. that's fun. Yeah, it says "from Arctic Expedition" or whatever. That's so it is the thing yeah exactly yeah
1: so and this one really does let Savini run wild uh this one is really fun so the creature in this one who got nicknamed Fluffy by the crew is I think just a ton of fun I love the design of this creature it uh it's ridiculous it's kind of goofy looking but also kind of terrifying at the same time you know like it's sort of a is it a Yeti or is it a baboon or is it just something else completely different? It's such a bizarre design. And I really, really love it. I think it's one of the best effects of Savini's career personally.
2: It's a, uh... Oh God, Todd wasn't feeling this one. Oh no. It, <laughs> it's here. Here's the thing. I look at it like this, this segment could have, I love all the nods to Carpenter and all that. And it's, it's really a lot of fun. I kind of wish they played it a little more like Jaws and show us the creature a little less.
1: That's not the kind of movie this is trying to be though. This is like Jaws Jaws is trying to create like some real tension. This is comic stories are not really about creating that kind of tension. They're about giving you the creature. They're about giving you a monster and showing you the monster. I mean, I, I subscribe to that theory on a lot of, horror movies that less is more but it depends on what you're going for i don't think the crate is going for that i think the crate wants you to see the monster because you're really honestly rooting for the monster at the end when he feeds adrian barbo to that thing because she is fucking terrible yeah. Not as an actress. Adrienne Barbo is a delight. I love her. But her character is a nightmare.
2: Oh, yeah. Her, char- her character is absolutely the worst. She
1: is a nightmare. Uh, but I think Fluffy is, I think it's a really fun design. Uh, it's totally unlike anything that Savini had ever done before. Uh, this is actually the very first articulated creature that Savini had ever created. And so in the story that this is based on, Fluffy, or it's not called Fluffy, obviously, but the creature is de- described as a flash of teeth and fur. And that's as much description as King gives it. So it kind of left the design open to interpretation. So Savini and a couple other designers worked up some sketches for what you know how they interpreted that. And they handed them off to Romero, who ultimately chose Savini's design. So that's what they're going with. So Savini's like, all right, now I got to make this thing. And I've never done this before. I do like squibs and gore effects and make, you know, chop the tops of heads off. But I've never created an entire creature from scratch that is clearly not human. So (laughs) he called Rob Bottin, hot off of not the success of the thing, not the commercial success of the thing, but the creative success of the thing, uh, Rob Boutine, who is another one of the legends of, of creature effects. And he calls him up. He's like, dude, I need help. I don't know. I don't know how to do this. And I, I'm signed. Like George wanted me to do this role. Cause I've done all the, I've done all of the effects for all of his movies. So like he wanted me back. And I don't know. I can't tell George that I don't know how to do this. So
2: uh, <laughs>
1: Rob Boutine talks to him on the phone for like an hour and a half and gives him in like great detail, exactly what Savini would need to do. And Savini based off of that phone conversation was able to create this creature. And it's basically a puppet. I mean, it's, he sculpted the head, but the head went over like a performer's face. It was actually that, that same 17 year old assistant uh, played (laughs) fluffy as well uh so i hope he was getting paid well in this movie he had to yeah. play Jordy verrill and fluffy <laughs>
0: just for all of the shit roles and by the way i know barbo like you know she seems like a delight but i guarantee you deborah hill stood up and cheered during this scene.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but it, gary what do you think okay we are on we know todd did not like the crate todd apparently doesn't like this one even though this i i said it's my favorite but i feel like this is one of the if not the favorite of most fans of this film,
0: yeah, uh, I think what's weird how many people I've seen really get down with uh, the something to tide you over story because I have seen that one listed multiple times, but I would say that's probably my least favorite. And uh, the I I have bounced back and forth between uh, between the crate and uh, between. Um, what was it? Father's, Father's Day. Day. Yeah, I, I balance between the two of those yeah. uh, being my favorites for different reasons. Like the crate, I feel like is it tickles all of my senses for things I like in fun horror movies and stuff like that. And it's yeah. also obviously got the tribute to John in there, or, or at least not a tribute to John, but it's played. Some homages, some yeah. references, yeah. And, uh, but then Father's Day, I just feel like is as wacky as this whole movie is supposed to be so it's yeah. it's just i don't know it's one of those is probably my those favorite. are my top like two crate. as well uh well let's go ahead and rank them rank the segments uh favorite favorite <laughs> to least favorite so if i had to do it i would probably gun to head honestly i would go father's day the crate i would go uh crate. uh, cre- uh I think I would probably still, I would go with uh, the, they're creeping up on you. And then uh, Jordy and then tied you over.
2: How about you, Todd? Um, tied you over creeping up on you. Tied you over is number one for you. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I, I, yeah, I think so. Tied you over creeping up on you. Um,
1: uh I told you guys we were going to do this. You didn't do your homework.
2: <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> uh, God, it, it's tough. I don't know. I get. I think. I think. I honestly, I think Jordy Verrill might be last for me. Oh, boo, Todd! I know. Everybody, boo, Todd. Boo this man! Oh. Boo! boo. <laughs> Well, I mean, uh, he was
0: next to last for me, so I can't.
2: Yeah. I is, mean, it's kind, it, it kind, of, it kind of a well toss-up. Yeah, it's kind of a toss-up with the
1: last three. Mine to watchers, are actually, my, mine's pretty close to yours, Gary. I would I would go The Crate, Father's Day, They're Creeping Up on You, Jordy Verrill, and then Tide You Over. Okay. And, 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 he, and I say, and Jordy Verrill being next to last is no dig on that one because I like it. I honestly like them all. The only one that I don't love is is tied you over and that's just because it's a little slow, but there's a lot that I love about that one. I love, you know, we talked about Leslie Nielsen and I, I love the concept and I love the, the, the creature design and, you know, there's a lot to love about that one. So it's even, yeah, there's even nothing I, like here it, like, I hate. Yeah. They're all fun. They're all super fun. So, well, I guess let's talk about creep creeping up on you. Cause that's the final segment of the film and the final segment almost didn't get made <laughs> by the time they, cause they were filming this one last. And by the time they got to this one, they'd already gone over budget. So they're like, well, I don't know. Maybe we just need to just, we've got four really good ones already. Let's just stick with those four. Uh, but Cletus Anderson, actually the production designer helped convince Romero to go ahead with it. He's like, it's a, it's a single set basically. And the set is the biggest expense of the story. It's like, I can do that really cheap. And there's only one actor, basically, in this. I mean, there's a second actor, but there's essentially only one actor for the majority of the runtime. So they went ahead and went for it. And they they had to build this set in that girl's school. And I'm really glad that they decided to make this one because I think out of all the segments in this film, I think this is the one that feels the most Romero-esque in that this is the one that has that social commentary the social message that he was known for
0: yeah that's yeah. a good point yeah.
1: i mean this is a story about a businessman a cruel despicable human being who has gotten like filthy rich by exploiting poor people you know uh he slings racial slurs at this this building manager while sitting in this blindingly white apartment you know until he's completely consumed by what the what is basically the metaphor the, the way that i see it is that he's being consumed by kind of the manifestation of his own hatred his own nastiness and his only his, his distrust of anyone that he sees as beneath him as a pest as a vermin
0: yeah now initially i i saw that that, that it was going to take place in like this lush like carpeted pit house kind of thing you know yeah. to obviously give him that rich vibe but i think it actually works out better that they keep it this like clean pristine like super sterile yeah, yeah exactly like kind of uh situation um i another side note i saw that they had the hitchhiker as another stephen king story on the back burner in case this one started to go over budget or something so they were ready to switch oh yeah to the hitchhiker which shows up in i think part two Kurt is actually one of the show or one of the segments in there but anyway just a side note but no this one's this one's a lot of fun and so many roaches. Uh, icky yeah, yeah so many roaches.
1: Whole,
2: holy crap there <laughs> so, so yeah so, so they
1: decided to make this one and they're like all right we need a shitload of roaches <laughs> like literally they're <laughs> like we need like a quarter million roaches we need two hundred fifty thousand roaches so they hired these two entomologists and they sent them to Trinidad or they, the guys were like, we need to go to Trinidad. That's where there's just a lot of roaches and we can get a lot of them there. So they go to Trinidad and they go in these bat caves because apparently roaches love bat shit. They, they like that. They're attracted to guano and they would, they would dig these holes in the bat cave and the holes would just fill up with roaches. So they would like stick their hands in and like gr- gather all the roaches. And then it would just happen again. Roaches would just fill up like it's a fucking well full of water, but it's roaches. So they just keep <laughs> doing it. And they said that the cave was so filled with roaches, there were so many roaches in that cave that they could literally lie down on their back and the roaches would move them across the floor. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh. So they they brought 18,000 roaches or I mean, I, approximately, I don't think anyone counted them. But they, they said they brought about 18,000 back to the States and then bred them to get the amount that they needed. Uh, the roaches actually got their own trailer on the set. They called it the roach motel, but there was basically a trailer on set that just housed roaches. Okay. That, I think they had for. to keep
0: like a climate controlled environment for them. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. They
2: would,
1: they would also like put Vaseline around the edges of the set they built, like at the tops of the walls. Cause they're the entomologists were like, just put Vaseline there and they won't be able to get over. So they, they did that. And they set down the roaches and then the roaches crawled the wall and just went right over the Vaseline. <laughs> but they had to like try to gather all after they were done shooting, they would try to gather as many of the roaches back as they could. And roaches don't, you, you can't train them. You can't like uh, direct them. So they would basically just have to dump them out and then film them as quickly as they could. But like within five seconds of the camera rolling, the roaches were, they were gone because they were running off to the corner somewhere. There was
0: some wow. segment of a film festival where Romero talks about a little bit that these guys uh, or the roaches, these guys, the roaches uh, were the more most expensive part because they ended up costing like I forget how many cents per roach he said, but it's, it's like cool. fifty cents a roach or something. Yeah, I, I wanted to yeah. say fifty. I felt I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't tell if that felt high, but it. Yeah, and then uh, for anybody wondering, no, the roaches did not survive the shoot. Like they. Yeah. Like the health department was all the, they had to, which is weird. It's not what you'd expect to hear, but that they had to kill them. Roaches
1: are the worst. I was going to say like (laughs) spiders, I can, you know, we, we did a, we did a arachnophobia episode a while back on our other show. And I'm like, you know what? Some spiders are fine. I've got a, I've got an orb weaver living by my front door right now. I don't give a shit. Roaches are, they have no benefit. They're just the worst disgusting creatures. I got to tell you guys a story. Yeah. <laughs> I watched this movie on Wednesday. Today, today's Monday. I watched it last Wednesday. Saturday, two days ago. Me and Bunny, buddy my wife, we were doing some deep cleaning in the house. And we've we've had a couple roaches show up in the last couple of months and, and we've had uh some you know pest control come out. We have a lot of trees right beside our back door, so it bugs get in and it happens, whatever uh So we've had pest control. They, you know, we we get regular, you know, quarterly sprayings and everything. But we still occasionally we'll see like a roach, and I'm like, "What the fuck, man! Like, are these pest control guys not doing their job?" So this is so the big guys, fucking huge, man. Yeah, they're yeah. So big. Those are they're the
0: so- ones. I, I swear they come from trees and stuff too. Like, I've- yeah,
1: and I think they're I think they're coming from the trees in my backyard, but. We were, we, we've got this bunny was like deep, deep cleaning, like spring cleaning kind of shit. And she was taking all the drawers out of our dresser in our bedroom. Mm-hmm. And behind those drawers was fucking dozens of roaches. Wow. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> uh, like like uh, in the cracks of, cause in the cracks of the, of the dresser, like in the little crevices, just piles of them. Uh, and wow. our like, we keep a pretty clean house. Yeah. And, it bunny is traumatized by it. Still, two days later, still Trump Like literally, she started like scrubbing out the uh, the dresser, and I'm like, "Bunny, just fuck that dresser." just throw it outside Set it on fire Yeah, and, and we did i put we, it by we the got road a new fire pit I put, it, I put it by the road and the trash picked it up today i'm like fuck that dresser uh because we could clean it all we want but roaches can get anywhere they can get yeah. anywhere they, no that's yeah. the problem they'll get in man. every little crack so i'm like we could clean it all we want they could still be in there and we don't know how they got i mean i'm, I'm assuming they came in from the trees outside but it was like and they and the thing is like just like in this story the roaches don't roaches don't really care how clean you keep your house yeah because they yeah. will find a way to get in oh, they're no, the dude. they're the worst fucking creatures they talked about on this on the on the set of this that they would you know the roaches would scatter and they'd be you wouldn't see them anywhere but then they would like take the phone apart you know. Oh my and God. the ins- like, the, the you know, Romero's like we we take a phone apart that's in there, and the and the inside of the phone is just a phone shaped mass of roaches that have just squeezed themselves into oh. the into the inside of this phone because they brought <laughs> a quarter million roaches to set. What the fuck do you think's going to happen? <laughs>
0: yeah, no, that's it. The health department, like, supposedly, I mean. Well, you know, I, I grew up in the
1: country, man. I, I mean, I saw... Dude, I grew up in the Louisiana. Time. The roaches there were three inches long.
0: Yeah, were- and, and well, what I saw were a bunch of the little ones, and the little ones were are, are just as terrible because they'll hide everywhere, too, yeah. in everything. But I do remember one day, uh, just not to make this the roach podcast, but we could... Uh, <laughs> I had to help my friend and his dad tear, like pulled out a tree in their backyard one time, and uh, the reason I thought of the big ones is it's like he saw it and it was like it was fine, everything was going great. We had a chain, and like he pulled the tree, and like as it tipped over and fell. I swear to god like thousands of roaches like came out of that tree it was like, like on the inside all, uh, of the tree yeah on the inside uh, of the tree. and they uh, all just like ran out it was just like this wave of roaches oh god it was,
1: like, damn it it's like oh my god <laughs> like Joe's apartment yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: yeah
0: and so and then for for like weeks afterwards we'd be like hanging out in his living room and like there'd be a random giant roach
1: <laughs> yeah like they just never go away like that day that that happened I I ran down to the hardware store and I got some Raid and I'm just in there, like, I gotta close the door so the dogs can't get in. And I'm just like, every time I see one, pss, pss, it's like the guy in this movie. And I was that fucking guy. And this was like two days after <laughs> I'd seen it. And like, that was the worst time to see this because I'm like, I saw what happened to that guy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because they were buried inside of his body. By the way,
0: any other way to end this episode except for you bursting into a bunch of ravenous. <laughs>
1: uh that scene i love that effect in this by the way savini was never in the room with the roaches i don't know if that was like he says he's like i wasn't in the room i was watching it through a window and directing from there. yeah yeah
0: he said he would not go in there
1: yeah he wouldn't do it but they basically created eg marshall as the actor in this he's another old school hollywood actor great character actor Uh, And he's so good in this. Like, he plays such a despicable dude. When they cast him in this, they're like, hey, man, you're going to be be in this segment where there's going to be, like, tens of thousands of roaches crawling all around you. He's like, yeah, man, that's cool. Like, whatever. He's like, (laughs) he's such a, like, seasoned actor. He's, like, up for anything. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, or Tom
0: Savini, who will, like, set himself on fire and drive himself into a wall on a motorcycle.
1: But (laughs) (laughs) But don't put me near those roaches. I will not touch a roach. I don't we'll blame them. They're it. gross. But yeah, so they built this, you know, fake E.G. Marshall body and filled it with roaches, but they couldn't get the roaches to come. <laughs> like they didn't know how to get them to come out. So they had the idea. And I I want to say it was like Romero's idea. Like Savini couldn't figure out how to do it. But they, uh, once again, used toilet paper. So they created like a hole in the chest and covered it in toilet paper, super thin, and then painted it to look like skin. And then the roaches burst out of it because it was so thin. So that's how they ended up doing that. And and the nice. one of the guy who the guys who was instrumental to shooting this scene was John Harrison. John Harrison, we've talked about on the show before. If you listen to Effects or Night Riders, uh, then you already know that name. He was, you know he had a small role in Knight Riders, but he also did some music for it. And he was, of course, one of the lead actors in Effects, but he was the first assistant director. On this movie, but in addition to being the first AD, he was also the composer for Creep Show. And yes. uh Romero had originally wanted to score it with library music from the 50s, as he's done on some past films. And they did a temp score with these this library music, but then they were gonna a lot of it wasn't like great high fidelity, and they you know they wanted to kind of try to take it and then improve upon it. So John Harrison and Romero were like, okay, we're gonna create little bits of music to kind of link these together. And they started doing that. Then they just kept adding more and more until basically they had just scored the whole film. <laughs> so <laughs> it kind of worked out by accident. But Yeah. So one one little thing, one effect, I guess we should say, that uh, Savini did on this movie that we haven't really talked about is the creep. Uh, that's the the ghoul, the like skeleton guy at the beginning of the movie. And I love him. I think he's great. I think he's a great looking creature. And I was blown away when I found out how they made him. Top Savini it's- legitimately murdered man. He didn't murder a man, but he sure did use a real a real human because that is a real skeleton. They used a real skeleton in this. That's uh, they, awesome. Basically, it was like, the, like a Hungarian skeleton or something that they got a hold of somehow. <laughs> uh, and they turned it into like a puppet, like a life-size pu- puppet. It took eight dudes to control it. And yeah, that's, that's the ghoul. They added eyes and stuff to it, obviously, and uh, articulated it. But they articulated real bone. It was cheaper than building it from scratch. That's wow. crazy still. Yeah. yeah. I mean
0: to think about like some somebody out there is related to the to creep the
1: creep. Yes. <laughs> oh, somebody's grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So they finish the film and they release it, but well, first they take it to the Cannes Film Festival. And there they invited an executive for Warner Brothers, but he wasn't able to get in because the screening was packed. It was like, it was at the Cannes Film Festival, but it was at one of these like small theaters, like kind of off to the side, you know, but still technically part of the festival. But still it was, people were there to see it. It it actually, it went really well and was packed and the executive could not get in. So they had to do a private screening for him. And then Warner Brothers immediately signed on to distribute the film after that. Nice. Nice. And the film was released on November 10th, 1982 and came in at number one at the box office. Uh, first time that that's ever happened for a Romero movie. And only time, actually. I maybe. was about to say, but, maybe the last time. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it may have happened with Land of the Dead later on. I'd have to look into that, but definitely the first time and one of the only times. It actually knocked uh, First Blood out of the number one spot.
2: <sighs> oh, you
0: don't remember. Oh, what? What? I said it beat old Rambo. Oh, Todd thanks. made Rambo sounds.
1: Oh, is that what that was? I thought you were taking a shit. I don't know what, know <laughs> no, what that was. To... <laughs> oh, is that what that was? Yeah,
0: that's uh. what it was. That's, that's what that's that your, was. That's
2: that's your Stallone? Available for parties, bar mitzvahs, corporate <laughs> events. Todd now... looks so beat
0: down. He doesn't know what he signed up for when he got into like, we're going deep on these movies. Like we're, yeah. we're talking about them here. Yeah, man, we don't fuck around. It ain't bedtime. <laughs> Bro, I got I got notes about like shout out at the NWA pod my other show uh, in uh, the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. There's a uh, Bob Backlund versus Off the Samoan uh, match from the NWA happening. Yeah, that's the- right. That's right. There's <laughs> a crossover. he'd <laughs> called by Vince McMahon, if I'm not mistaken. And so. Jordy
1: Verrill is loving it. He is loving it. So Creepshow was a big hit. It was the biggest, probably the biggest hit of Romero's career and led to a sequel five years later. Uh, For Creepshow 2, Romero actually took over scripting duties himself. He was adapting some stories by Stephen King, but he he handed over the director's chair to his uh, director of photography, Michael Gornick. And then a third film got released in 2007 uh, by the rights holders. That Neither King nor Romero had anything to do with it creatively. It is, by all accounts, horrible. And Savini like, disowns it because he's like, I didn't have anything to do with that. It's awful. Uh, I haven't seen it because I've heard it so bad that I never, <laughs> never bothered. And then, of course, last year, Shudder released a pretty critically acclaimed TV series, uh, also called Creepshow. And episodes of that were based on the works of Stephen King, uh, but also Joe Hill, Joe R. Lansdale, uh, you know, people like that. And both John Harrison and Tom Savini helmed episodes of the series. Uh, Savini actually directs the very last segment of the series, which is based on a story by Joe Hill, who, of course, they as Gary mentioned before, they met on the set to this movie, which is kind of cool, you yeah, know, almost awesome. 40 years later.
0: <laughs> Just like, I mean, Greg Nicotero uh, and Joe Hill and Tom Savini and all of those, all those people work on the later Creep shows show I don't know yeah I
1: think Nicotero is the um showrunner I know he directs the first episode
0: yeah yeah that's right I think he is he is the showrunner and directed the first one yeah or no two episodes according to sorry I just pulled it up right here he uh he did the finger and gray Matter.
1: the off. finger is super fun yeah <laughs>
0: it's a super nice. fun segment well let's did, get an overall opinion did Todd like this movie
2: what do you guys think uh so
0: apparently, apparently not don't know. yeah we don't know
2: uh, if i have to give it a thumbs up or thumbs down i gotta go thumbs down I- god damn it todd I'm not a big fan of <laughs> not a fan so- of creep show no not
1: really todd hates horror <laughs> todd is not a horror guy uh, <laughs> oh man just hear you're, todd, you're todd you're talk just, right now you know what just, may- you're just further proving my theory that todd is not a horror guy well <laughs> todd he, you're he not that he
0: is in, in that you probably didn't love this movie and you're not alone in that, Justin, somebody needs a nap. <laughs> 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 well, the time for our favorite new segment. Our favorite new segment. I did it for this one, too. I'm sorry. I got a, I got a few here real quick. All right. Um, let's hear it. It's Barry Lou. Todd needs a nap. Todd, no, that's what I'm saying. He's not alone. I, Somebody I do, needs I, a nap. Do,
2: I do need a nap.
0: <laughs> uh, Mary Lou wrote in, uh, gave it one out of five stars. Her subject line says one star. Thank you. Her, her whole comment is DVD in good condition, movie terrible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Please elaborate, Mary Lou.
0: No, that's all she's got. That's all they uh, have uh, Nope, that's it. Uh, fault uh, to fault or something. Uh, His subject line says, I wish I'd never had to give this a star. He says, they say horror movies are a test of your wits and your endurance. And this movie does that, but not in the way you may have intended it to be. The acting is so (laughs) diabolical. You begin to wonder why the hell did you put your money to waste on a movie like this? The acting is so hilariously bad that when friends and family interrupt and start talking about, think I ought to mow the lawn tomorrow, what do you think, dear? You gladly give your opinion just so you can get away from the terrible film. Now, when you think of George Romero <laughs> films, you think, oh, this might be good because of such classics as the Living Dead trilogy and Codename Trixie, the craziest to you and me, and the amiable Bruiser. But then Bruiser's fucking terrible. (laughs) But then this just really tears your heart out. Again, I go back to the acting. and how poor it is, but you've just got to see it to believe it. I mean, how how do these actors, and I use the term loosely, sleep at night knowing that they made a turkey like this? Actually, I'm being cruel. Turkeys have better taste than to watch this tribe. Avoid at all costs. Please, I beg, don't submit yourself to this torture. Now, he did say you have to see it to believe it, but then also begs you not to watch it. Yeah, that's (laughs) some
1: mixed signals there, bud. I got
0: one more real quick. It's Windsong 92, subject line. Creepshow is the most saddest excuse for a horror movie. Okay, let's get started. This movie is not my thing. I thought parts of it were laughable and boring. I thought the acting was completely cheesy. I wanted it to get somewhere, but it never did. So the only story that made sense was The Crate. That was it. Everything else was a drag. Now, the actors who started this movie knew better. There's Ed Harris, Stephen King, Leslie Nielsen, Ted Denson, Hal Holbrook, Adrian Barbu, and Tom Atkins. They should stick to movies people appreciate more, have a standard. Well, that's all I have to say other than creep show, more like crap show for sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Well, it despite does. what those people think, Creepshow was very successful. So, in the immediate aftermath of its success, the Laurel Group, which you know is Rubenstein and and uh, Romero's film production company, they developed an anthology TV series called Tales from the Dark Side. Uh, really, I mean, kind of a fun little cheap, you know, anthology series. It's, it's pretty fun though. Ran from 1984 to 1988, and it actually spawned its own big screen continuation in 1990, which was directed by John Harrison. One of the biggest things I think, though, to spring from Creepshow's success came in 1989. So, when Hollywood saw how well this movie did, they snapped up the rights to actual EC Comics, the comics that inspired the movie, and created a TV show called Tales from the Crypt, which aired on HBO for seven seasons and is still, you know, fondly remembered today. I still revisit Tales from the Crypt episodes multiple times a year. Uh, it's not on it,
0: the stupid HBO app, though,
1: right? It's not. The the Tales from the Crypt rights are super complicated. So, unfortunately, it's not on like HBO Max or anything. Man, I wish they would figure that out so it'd be easier to watch, but it's not. But the DVDs are pretty cheap. You can buy the seasons pretty cheap. Uh, but Creepshow, honestly, may have been the last big success of Romero's career. I mean, the, the next film he made was not very popular upon release, and we'll talk about that next week. Uh, it's because... Although it was not popular upon release, it's gone on to become, I think, one of his most well-regarded among fans. And that's where we'll pick up next week, of course, with that film. The third film in Romero's Living Dead trilogy, 1985's Day of the Dead. We're wrapping up the zombie movies for now.
0: (laughs) For now. Because Romero wasn't wrapped up with
1: zombie movies he he thought he he thought he was he thought he was (laughs) and And then just when they thought he was out they dragged him back in yeah he was in like like, 2007 or something at a certain point he
0: finally was like "Man, i need some money yeah zombies (laughs) will pay
1: the bills but next week we're talking about day of the dead starring joe Pilato of effects so that should be fun uh you guys can find out where to stream it on our website cinemashock.net Uh, If you go to the episodes on cinemashock.net, you can listen to all of these episodes for one thing. It's a one-stop shop. But I've also started putting links to all of the upcoming films that we're going to talk for like the next four weeks after each episode. And all of those links will give you uh, the options of where to watch these streaming online, whether to stream on somewhere like Netflix or to rent through Amazon or Vudu or something like that. You'll be able to find them all on there. So, Yeah, so... so go over to cinemashock.net and all that. You and let us know
0: it. on the Twitter and on the Instagram what you like, what you don't like, if we're if we're talking too much about a movie, if we're talking not enough, whatever. We're we're just like going in. Like Todd, do you, Todd, do you Todd's think
2: Todd's taste in movies sucks? Yeah, yeah. Let, let him know. Mr. Let Todd, Todd A. Davis.
0: needs to Wake
1: Up. <laughs> Yeah. at mr todd a davis todd drink some coffee next time todd, yeah, i might have to todd maybe next time you you should not say you're a horror guy when you don't like fucking <laughs> yeah it's a good point it's a that's a
0: i felt like that was a slam dunk and then todd was like no bueno, on no bueno. Uh, yeah. but you know i mean to each their own you're allowed to have your own opinion are you with todd do you hate creep show are you with us? Do you love Creep Show? Do you, do you have think good it's taste that tradition? <laughs> by God, in my house, I think now. I think I yeah. just usually watch it every year.
1: I do too. It's a go-to. It's my go-to horror anthology, and we'll talk about other horror anthologies on the show. But I honestly think this is like the king of horror anthologies. I think this is the most consistent. I think this uh, and, is and the one that
0: any horror anthology that comes out from this one on, they all say they like Creep Show. That was yeah, I mean, and this was up.
1: definitely not the first. And I mean anthologies go back decades before this but this is i I do think this is like it's the most consistent probably of all horror anthologies in that every segment is pretty good to great uh even like you know even my least favorite is still pretty good whereas there are some horror anthologies where there are segments that are downright terrible and hard to get through You
0: know, I'm not gonna hate on Todd though, because he was with us on Night Riders, and uh, you yeah. thought we were all gonna hate Night Riders, and I did. We yeah. all loved Night Riders, and so, I yeah. still, to this day, as we're recording this, think about Night Riders. I think it's legitimately one of my favorite <laughs> oh. things I've ever seen, and I
1: just well, want to go back and watch it. I enjoy being surprised by you guys. I mean, I was surprised that Todd didn't like Creep Show.
2: I went and got uh, the brother, one of the brother blue books, and uh, oh, nice. I've got another one coming uh soon. That's awesome. Yeah, Very cool. Yeah.
1: Well, you guys, you want to tell our listeners where you can be found on the internet. I already said Mr. Todd A. Davis for all yeah. your
2: hate mail. Yeah, at Mr. Todd A. Davis on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and DD Beyond.
0: I still don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. What?
2: Guys, it's not that it's not rocket science. It's a Dungeons and Dragons website. But is it like a social media thing? Uh, you can connect with players and play online, but it's like a resource for all their materials and. But you there's... can like
1: friend somebody, like somebody can look you up and friend you. Yeah. All right, cool. I've never played yeah.
0: Dungeons and Dragons. I will uh, not ever be on D and D beyond. But I am. At, this I. is Gary yeah. Horn
1: on all the social medias.
0: You can I'm find at me Justin
1: there. underscore Bishop. Follow the show at Cinema Shock at Cinema underscore Shock. I should say, Twitter and instagram or find us up there on facebook and uh that's all we got until next week i mean some of you guys that uh, just want to say some of you guys have I'm been
0: tr- super kind and yes. uh and, and, and we we respect and appreciate everyone that's listening to this show uh, we're trying to be like just instead of the in the website a one-stop shop for like movie information of like you're like i just want to know about creep show like you know that you can throw on this episode That's all the shit you're going to need to know about Creepshow. You'll be like, I looked it
1: all up and I found all of it and I tried to (laughs)
0: convey it all in one spot. So if you guys have any suggestions or movies you want to see, or tell us to keep it shorter or whatever you want to do, let us know. We are open to your suggestions. We love all of you. Uh, But yeah, like Justin said, until next week, may the weeks of Liberty never lose a feather.
1: Be excellent to each other. I hate this part. (laughs) He's got that look mm. in his eyes. Johnny has the keys. Do you think he'll pick a different one when we stop doing the Romero thing, or do you think he's like, like forcing it to be a thing? It's, no, not a it's, it's, it's gonna, gonna be, be insane. Yeah, because like, yeah. be excellent mo- to each other is a is a great send off. It's a great piece of life <laughs> advice, and it's it came from the the mouth of our Lord and Savior, Keanu Reeves.
2: Listen, the more you
1: hate, Johnny on it, has the, the, more the
2: keys? I'm... I'm I'm gonna push that. I'm gonna push that blade in a little further. Twist it just a little bit harder. Oh, it's real
0: <laughs> intense about that.
2: Hey guys, if you think uh,
1: Todd's sign off sucks. <laughs> tweet him oh, at oh, Mr. Todd <laughs> Davis at us at cinema underscore shock and let us know. We'll listen. Matter of fact, send him comment. suggestions. Yeah. Don't just quotes. tell me it
2: sucks. Come to me with a solution. Tell come him something better. With, anything. Yeah, better. Tell me something I, I'm, better. i behind you Where's on this? my cake? How about that? Where's my cake?
0: That's better. This is, this is a, the <laughs> issue with modern political situations. If you're in such a <laughs> political situation as us right now, come with <laughs> solutions as well. And yeah. uh, give give Todd some other not only criticisms options. but solutions. Right, exactly. All right. Well, that's that.